Hi guys, hi everyone. So today I'm joined by uh, Mr. Jared Brown. He's the lead counsel at Brown Litigation based in Toronto, Canada. He's, an, he's also a member of Law Society of Upper Canada. Hi Jared, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you Ricardo? I'm well as well, thank you a lot. So uh, I've asked you to come here today because uh, recently in Portugal we had a bill passed, uh, Bill 75-13 from the government, um, which uh, was a hybrid with uh, the former Bill 75-13 from the government and Bill 242-13 from Bloc de Esquerda, which in English would be something like uh, the leftist bloc, which is the far-right party we have uh, at the parliament right now, uh, as well as the Communist Party, but we'll put that aside for now. So, uh, in this bill, uh, initially, because uh, almost three three months ago, I had my first interview with Dr. Oren Amite and we went through the main problems related to these two bills. And now we only have one, a final document coming from the government. But uh, back then, we talked about uh, how they were thinking about uh, changing the legal age to change uh, sex uh, and name at the civil registry to 16, it was 18 back then, now it's 16 with this new bill, uh, with, no, with no medical report, uh, but back then uh, they still had the idea of not even, uh, not even for people to have the need to have uh, some kind of authorization coming from their uh, parents, um, yeah, from their parents to go to the civil registry and make the change so now they backed off from that and people have to be authorized by their parents. Uh, uh, so I, I think th those uh, those are the most important things to say right at the beginning because we're not going to talk about uh, bill uh, Bill 242-13, like I did with Dr. Ron Amita here. We're just going to focus on 75-13 with these uh, modifications that they had. So to start off with and to go from the beginning of the bill till the end. So I, I think that one of the main topics here in the, and that is part of the theoretical foundations is um, because I have the sense that uh, what they put in the theoretical foundations could give ground in the future uh, or basis for future bills under the rubric, the rubric of expanding uh, trans, uh, trans rights exactly as this one is presented. So, for example, they say that uh, they, uh, they feel the, uh, that it would be important to exclude the diagnosis of uh, gender dysphoria, even though they, uh, that is not included in any one of the articles that compose the bill. But uh, uh, could you please explain now something that even if it's not part of the main text of the bill, because it is not included in the articles themselves, but is part of the, the exposition of motives, how that could pr possibly give ground for future bills? Well, I mean, we had a so we have a, a similar movement uh, in Canada, and that was enunciated uh, or came to fruition in a variety of pieces of legislation that had similar 
um, ideology behind it, both at the provincial level, so our you know akin to our state level, but also federally, which uh, manifested in in what was called the Bill C-16 in Canada, um, and obviously I had uh, uh, there were some pretty um, loud voices that spoke on C-16, including uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Uh, and myself, I also joined him in testifying on the Senate. And what was happening with that piece of legislation and with the similar uh, legislation that happened provincially is that the bills themselves on their face um, read, uh, I would say, in a benign fashion. For instance, C-16 simply said that they were going to amend the Canadian Human Rights Code uh, and uh, to include uh, protection against discrimination on the basis of gender identity and gender expression. Full stop. But what was important is those terms were not defined within the legislation itself. You had to look elsewhere to figure out what that meant and what the ideology, uh, so to speak, um, that was motivating and animating the legislation. And in this situation in, in Canada, we you had to, to connect the dots between what was this innocuous benign piece of legislation in the form of C-16. You had to connect it to a... Um, our, our federal department of justice uh, you had to go to their website to see that uh, those terms uh, what they meant and what our federal department of justice said is you can now look to the Ontario or state level uh, uh, human rights commission because they've developed a whole body of policies that in, that define what gender identity means what gender expression means and what what uh, impl uh, implementing these concepts into law what it will mean and and so in our legislation, I see parallels with what you guys have going on in Portugal in that the bill on its own leaves a lot of, of gaping holes in it and, and requires the reader or the person who will be interpreting that legislation to have to look elsewhere to figure out what all of this stuff means. Now, I, my sense is that that's deliberate. Um, when we went into the Senate in Canada, uh, um, Dr. Peterson and I, and testified on C-16, we were asked, do you think the terms gender identity and gender expression are too vague? And the reason being, if, if, if a piece of legislation contains terms that are too vague in Canada, um, the courts don't, first of all, don't like it. In fact, there, there's a, uh, when I testified, I read out uh, a quote from our Supreme Court of Canada that said just that, that overbroad pieces of legislation are to be avoided. And therefore, they put the onus back on the legislative body, in our case, the parliament, to ensure that there are no overbroad uh, terms requiring judges to then figure out what all of this means. And so we pointed out that there is no definition in, in the legislation itself as to what those terms meant, and that you had to go through this, this rabbit warren of, of other sources to figure out what all this means. And notwithstanding that we pointed that out to the Senate, the, the legislation passed unamended. And as it stands to this day, there is no definition of gender identity and gender expression within our Canadian law. And, and I venture that that's deliberate. Um, I, I, I have said that there will be a guideline passed by our Federal Human Rights Commission that will, that will add meat to the bones, if you will, or, or the, you know, define what these things are and make it more clear what the animating ideology is behind it. But it hasn't happened yet. And when I read your Portuguese uh, uh, legislation, when I, when I read um, uh, what I'm seeing there, 
I'm seeing the same vagueness. I'm seeing the same uh, uh, underlying animating ideology, but left deliberately vague. And and I have to imagine they're doing it for a variety of reasons. One is, I don't think they want to make their intentions clear. So the authors of these types of bills and legislation, I don't think they want the general public or the legislative body themselves to know what it is or, or, or the, the, the freight that is being carried in these pieces of legislation. I, they, I don't think they want the level of scrutiny that, for instance, Dr. Peterson, myself, and some other uh, people in Canada brought to bear on that legislation. They want the they position these pieces of legislation, and I would imagine the same experience is happening within your legislative body. These pieces of legislation are positioned by the proponents of them um, as as uh, a long overdue uh, um, uh, progressive amendment to the law to to extend equal human rights to every citizen uh, in um, in society and and they they make it sound as if to oppose it or better than that to simply you know to raise an eyebrow and look at it and say what does this mean what are we doing here uh, uh, that makes you positions you on the wrong side of history and that's what they want they want that anyone that should to start digging in and saying what what is motivating this bill what does gender identity and and gender expression mean um, they want you you to be the bigot, so to speak, or the transphobe for even asking. Um, and, and you're required to ask. If you're a smart lawyer, a smart legislator, um, or, or anyone in society who cares about what's happening at the, at the, at the legislative level of your country, um, you're going to want to know what these things mean. What are we doing here in the law? Laws should not be passed unless people understand them. And I, I, at first I thought that within Canada, um, the Senate didn't understand what was going on. However, after I thought we made it fairly clear what was motivating the legislation and it still got passed, I then realized that no, it was deliberately left vague so that, uh, uh, so that people wouldn't ask questions. But even when the questions were asked, it was going to be driven through. So you ask me sort of, you know, it, it, why are these questions left unanswered? Why is there vagueness in the legislation? I think it's deliberate. I absolutely think it's deliberate. Yeah, and now that you talked about the hearings, another question that I wanted to pose to you was that uh, why, do, why do they have these hearings for specialized people? So, for example, here in Portugal, last January and February, we had a lot of hearings with psychologists, with pediatricians, with doctors, with, with people from the National Council of Ethics for the Life Sciences and so on. And, and I mean, uh, all of these people all that they said was that they were against this bill for several different reasons and in the end they don't seem to take these people that are the people who know uh, to, how to deal with these issues, they don't seem to take their word in consideration. So, uh, I, I mean, uh, what are the purpose of these hearings if they don't care about them? <laughs> well, it's part of the legislative process, and and uh, and so they they allow this to unfold. In in our situation uh, in Canada, um, we had uh, the the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, and that's liberal with a capital L. They're not in any means by any means a classical small L liberal party anymore. Uh, but we had the Liberal Party was supporting or was the proponent of the bill with with some cross party support. Um, however, the Conservative Party um, was 
opposing it. And it was the Conservative Party that that said to the Liberal Party, if you want to pass this legislation, we've got to have these open hearings because we've got people that need to speak to the bill. Um, and so it was sent to what's called committee and, and where it was studied, quote, quote, studied. Um, they, they do it to show that the bill or the piece of legislation received robust analysis. In other words, it wasn't passed on a whim. Um, in Canada, interestingly, the piece of legislation uh, came up through Parliament, uh, our legislative body, once. And at that stage, uh, went through full committees. Um, it then died because there was a change in control of the government. There was an election. Well, when the legislation was brought forward the second time in the form of C-16, there were no committee hearings at, at what is considered our parliamentary level or our main legislative body. It was actually fast-tracked with multi-party support, I venture, because not everybody understood what was in it, um, and then went to what we call our, our Senate or our secondary level of, of legislative approval, and that's where the committee hearings were had. But it was very much uh, a show by the proponents of the legislation of, you know, look, we've, we've, we've opened the bill to scrutiny, we've heard from different people, and their arguments were dismissed by the Senate, and, and therefore it's a good piece of legislation, and, and the Dr. Petersons of the world, and the Jared Browns, and, and the uh, the Bruce Parties, and some of the other, and Jay Camerons, uh, who are other legal minds, uh, they're just crazy, they're just foolish. And so, um, it, you know, your experience in Portugal is not unusual. It, 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 if there's a will to pass these, these pieces of, of legislation, they'll get passed, and um, and the scrutiny that they have is, is, it's like a show trial, really, I think. So, so in the end, it's just to try to legitimize what they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I, I can only speak to our, our experience, but at the Senate, I mean, there's a, there's a video of it floating around on, the YouTube, on YouTube of us testifying, and what you'll see is, um, um, from our perspective, from our vantage point where, where Dr. Peterson and I were sitting, um, there were senators on our left and there were senators on our right. Uh, um, and the senators that we were looking to on our right were actually the liberal senators. They were the proponents, supporters of the of the legislation. And the ones on our left, looking to our left, were, were the conservatives who were, who were testing the legislation, if you will. And, uh, and what you'll see in the video is some fairly closed minds amongst the liberal proponents of the bill. It's an interesting video just in the sense that you see that there is not only uh, a, a lack of openness uh, amongst the proponents of the legislation to even hearing the arguments, um, but they seem to be angry with us, with Dr. Peterson and I, for even daring to question um, what is uh, what should be an altruistic, you know, uh, um, uh, effort to extend human rights to a marginalized group, and and um, and that's the way the proponents of these 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 pieces of law actually think. They believe that that we're standing in the way. Uh, that were proponents of genocide. In fact, that came out on the video as well. They think that you're essentially standing on the side of, of Adolf Hitler and genocide if you were to dare to even question that the the structure of the bill, how it was drafted, what thinking went into it. You can't do it because you're you're. I'm sorry, you're not the expert. You're not the expert on on this marginalized community's lived experience, and therefore you're a bigot for even asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and now just before we get into the specific articles, uh, there were two main points brought up in the hearings here in Portugal by several people, doctors, psychologists and so on. And w one of them is, if now people are, people are allowed to go to the civil registry and, s and change sex and name, even though they are not 
they were not evaluated by someone that can do that kind of evaluation, a doctor, a psychologist, or, or, or someone like that. Uh, and then they go to the street, they take out to the street, and, and they present themselves, even if in appearance they seem of the sex they were born in. Uh, and, and then they say, for example, a man says, oh, oh no, but I now identify as a woman. And then someone uh, treats that person uh, as, be, as belonging to the sex she, po uh, she poses as, because, I mean, they say that people don't, uh, they say specifically in the bill that people don't have even to do anything to change their appearance nor anything like that, to conform with something that is, uh, th that would present to other people as being of the sex they now identify with. So, uh, I, I mean, th this is one of the points. And another point is that uh, if now they are uh, officially of the opposite sex, and this was brought up by a doctor in the hearings, uh, and they go to the doctor, and the doctor wants to evaluate that person properly. Uh, for example, if the doctor uh, thinks that the person might have a disease that is specifically related to, a part, uh, to one of the sexes, and now the person identifies instead of a, of a man as a woman, uh, and, and then they, they include these definitions of, uh, that are very vague of indirect discrimination and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, what people said is that uh, how can they be sure that they are not discriminating against this person if they uh, un unknowingly treat her as being of the sex she, she presents as and not the sex she, she says now she, she belongs to. Well, that's the, that's the conundrum that has been raised by others that says that what, what these pieces of legislation do, um, and I've read, I've read obviously the legislation that's, uh, that's being proposed in, in Portugal, um, it's, it's introducing an entirely subjective uh, um, test or uh, an entirely subjective basis to identity. In other words, there is no uh, there is no requirement or or aspect of it that is objective or connected to the objective uh, outside world, if you will. It's all entirely people's lived experiences and their own um, experience of their identity. And the I mean, you've just essentially enunciated what the pro potential problem of that is, and that is it it could in, it can introduce a form of, of chaos into the legal system. What what C sixteen and the similar legislation has done provincially, and and only since um, there have been people that have spoken out against it. Um, now that people are aware that these pieces of legislation have been passed, and that there are these concepts called gender identity and gender expression um, into law, um, it makes people very hesitant. To interact with uh, with communities that they believe might uh, be, you know, gender non-conforming or non-binary individuals. If I'm walking uh, into a social situation and I have some form of uncertainty as to who I'm dealing with, um, I'm not going to be outgoing and gregarious and reach out to and connect with the other person. I'm going to be guarded, defensive, worried that I'm going to do make a misstep or do something wrong. 
Dr. Peterson has talked about this extensively, and he said that, that many people have reached out to him who are within the transgender or non-binary community and said this is exactly the opposite of what they want. They don't want to be stigmatized. They do not want to be um, objectified within the law. They, 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 want, to, uh, they want to pass, is, is one of the things I've heard. In other words, they want to simply go about their daily lives without the, the barriers that, that you know, marginalized communities tend to face. Well. This legislation in, 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 in Portugal as well, when, when you introduce an entirely subjective uh, definition of identity into the law, you're creating chaos, but you're also creating problems for the for the rest of the community that has to interact. And and as awareness of these pieces of legislation come up, and an awareness of what happens if you run afoul of them, which we can get to later, um, if you run, you know if you contravene the the legislation, um, it, it causes people to to be concerned and worried. I, I represent. Um, my, my legal practice is I'm a litigation lawyer, I'm a trial lawyer, and uh, most of my clients are, are employers. They're companies that employ people. And so C-16 uh, would apply to any of my uh, clients who are, who are federal employers, and then the provincial legislation that's, that's identical to it applies to my, the rest of my employer clients. And I can tell you that when they began to learn about the, the Canadian legislation, they immediately became concerned. They, they, they became worried that this was a minefield of potential infractions under the Human Rights Code. And the same thing is going to happen in Portugal. Now, changing, changing people's identity documents, which is something that you talked about, um, you know, that's one of those things where, yeah, I'm not, I mean, this is a personal opinion. It's not a legal opinion. I'm not so sure we should be re requiring medical evidence when somebody wants to change their identification documents in terms of their name, uh, uh, and certainly, uh, if if there's a document that's requiring a, a gender to be denoted, I'm not so sure I would want to demand medical evidence. That is a personal opinion, not not a legal opinion. Um, however, what needs to be understood is in, um, documents like that ha uh, serve a purpose. Um, an example is like a passport, a Canadian passport. Um, it is the it is the tool that you would use to travel internationally, and the the problem with allowing a subjective definition of an identity to to allow you to change documents, if you will, based on that subjective identification principle, may not be an international or worldwide recognized thing. Meaning, in most of the progressive countries, I would say Canada, sounds like Portugal, maybe even the European Union, you might be okay traveling under a non-binary gendered passport or, or a passport that identifies a gender that is disconnected from your underlying biology. But if you were to enter the Eastern Bloc, for instance, a former Eastern Bloc, let's say uh, uh, Russia or, or you know, uh, some of the countries in Asia and things like that, I'm not sure that they recognize these concepts in the same way. And what you may find is that while your home country is very progressive and your subjective definition of identity allows you to pass through, um, you're going to be stopped at borders and not welcomed with the open arms that you expect in countries that don't understand that. Yeah, right. So uh, now to start to get into the articles themselves. So uh, one interesting thing they've done, and I think they, that this came from the fact that they were heavily criticized by people during the hearings, is the fact that they removed Article 2, wh where they give the definitions about sex, gender, gender identity, gender expression, and then, more importantly, even uh, a direct and indirect discrimination. But they kept Article 3, 
the three is prohibition against discrimination. A and in Article t uh, 3, they explicitly put that people must be protected from discrimination, uh, direct or indirect discrimination. So uh, what do you think uh, they, they tried to do here by uh, excluding the definition of direct and indirect discrimination, but, but then keeping the specific text of Article 3? It's exactly what happened, and we, we, we somewhat covered this, but it's exactly and precisely what happened in Canada with Bill C-16. So there were provincial legislation that protected or that, that, that prevented or prohibited discrimination on the grounds of, of gender identity and gender expression that existed in, in many of the provinces. And then there was a body of policies that came along that, that, that have the force of legal law that were, were developed after the fact, after the legislation was passed, that then said what these terms meant. It defined gender identity, it defines gender expression, it defines what would constitute discrimination or harassment on those base, on those terms. And so, it, it, as I said, I've said many times, it puts the meat on the bones. The, the legislation that's passed simply says, thou shalt not discriminate on the grounds of gender identity and gender expression. And then, it, then the human rights commissions are policy development or, or organizations then develop policies to say, you know, what does that mean? Um, when C-16 was passed, they, they did the same thing. They simply said it is now going to be a prohibited ground of discrimination, gender identity, gender expression, and you have to look elsewhere to find out what those terms mean. And, uh, and in fact, the, the, the resource, the Federal Department of Justice in Canada, the resource that is supposed to tell you, um, is supposed to give an opinion to the public on the, on the constitutionality of the bill. Is this a bill that, would, that, would, that, that our country can pass? Is it within the jurisdiction of the government to do it? Is there any problems? They basically give a legal opinion to the public on, on, on pending legislation. They had a website that, that said, hey, you've got to look for these definitions elsewhere the Ontario Human Rights uh, Commission, that that website actually disappeared while the bill was still pending before the Senate. In other words, before the bill had actually received, uh, had actually been passed, before uh, Dr. Peterson and I testified at the Senate on the bill, um, the website that said that disappeared. Uh, gone. Now we obviously took a took a uh, uh, we have a, um, a historical version of that, and we already had copies of it. But I found that very fascinating because it was the only thing that allowed us to know what these terms meant, that there was an ideology behind them, that it was fully developed, uh, an ideology from what I understand that that disconnects gender entirely from from any concepts of biology or biological sex. Um, nobody would know that simply looking at Bill C-16 on its face because the thing that, that told you all of those concepts was gone, that the connect was gone. And so in your uh, legislation that's being passed, they're doing exactly the same thing. So when somebody sees th terms like gender identity and gender expression, who is not a gender scholar or a gender academic, they won't know what that means but they don't immediately have an adverse reaction to it. And the reason they don't, they're not, someone reading that will think nothing of it. I use the word, it's innocuous or benign, is because when you're, ext when you're extending grounds of protection under human rights legislation, people are immediately thinking 
oh, right, like the civil rights movement in the U.S., who would ever stand against some form of civil or human rights for, for some member of society? Nobody takes the deep dive and says, well, what, what does that mean? What does gender identity and gender expression mean? What are we enshrining into the laws of the land? And if, if the piece of legislation doesn't connect the dots doesn't say what these things mean, doesn't define them, doesn't point you to academic research that, have, that has developed these terms, then who, who can oppose them? Who would oppose them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So, and now um, uh, Article 7, that now is Article 5 in the final bill, uh, they curiously changed it too, uh, and I'm going to read it now, except in situations of confirmed risk to the health, the treatments and surgical and pharmacological interventions, or of any other nature, which imply modifications at the level of the body or sexual characteristics of the underaged, and now in the final bill included intersex person before it was underage i think and now intersex person must not be performed until the moment in which the gender identity is manifested because i mean another thing they they were accused of is of not uh, being able to properly distinguish between intersex people and trans people i heard this in the hearings and so uh, and uh, last october we had a debate on public television about uh, the former bill uh, and there was a, a pedo surgeon, I think it is the name we give these doctors, uh, doctors who perform surgeries on babies when they are born, uh, and he asked uh, uh, two of the members of parliament who were behind the, the, the bills, 75 and 242, that were there, uh, oh, but you, but you say that uh, we, we shouldn't attribute a sex, we shouldn't assign a sex uh, to, the, to the baby when he or she is born. So, uh, but there are certain, uh, certain situations where I have to intervene immediately in the first few days of life to save the life of that person. So if you put this into the bill, uh, and if you say this, how come I can do my work without being attributing necessarily a sex to that person and, and, and doing something that goes against this bill. And, and they couldn't answer. They, they, they only said that, oh, that, that, that isn't true, that isn't true. So, <laughs> okay, so this, this actual, this article in the, the, the legislation um, is the one that caused me the most concern. It is a hot this, 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 the subject of this article is a hot topic of debate in Canada right now. I know uh, uh, Dr. Oren Amate um, speaks extensively about this type of thing on social media. There are others who have commented that this is problematic. And, and what this, this, this section does is it would, allow, um, it would allow medical bodies to actually intervene um, in uh, with children, and I submit to you that the way I read this was even if the child is under the age of 16, this article allows uh, for um, uh, what what the uh, uh, proponents of this type of legislation call gender affirming or gender confirming uh, actions, such as providing uh, um, uh, hormones and and puberty blockers and things like that. Um, this this piece of the way that this is drafted, it would allow um, uh, medical authorities to actually uh, uh, treat children 
for things like gender dysphoria or issues associated with gender identity and actually um, uh, suppress uh, sex characteristics um, through admis- uh, uh, administering hormones and things like that to someone who's actually under the age of 16. Now, what's shocking about that is that in just about every Western country I'm aware of, children can't, uh, cannot uh, manifest consent to these types of things on their own. And so what's happening right now in Canada is the debate, uh, we have similar legislation in Canada um, that allows uh, for children to be treated in this manner. What you're essentially doing is you're, you're treating someone who cannot consent, you're treating them in a way that could permanently change what they are, who they are. Um, and what I've seen as a lawyer is a potential for a massive class action lawsuit, as we call them in Canada, uh, a multi-plaintiff civil tort litigation case, um, whereby the people that have uh, that have undertaken this changes to the law, that have allowed these treatments to happen, are exposing themselves to future liability. Um, what that means is, as these children grow up, if they then decide or determine that what was done to them uh, before they had the ability to manifest consent under the law um, uh, w- was actually something akin to negligence or, or a tort being committed against them. And I can see a lot of situations coming down the pipe where uh, regretful children are going to be suing not only their parents but their government and the medical practitioners that are doing these things. Um, and so I, I see this as the future of class action litigation in Canada. And now, looking at the legislation, I have it on the screen in front of me, that's what my eyes are scanning over. I'm seeing a similar situation in Portugal, and, and, and it, it terrifies me. I have small children, and to think that you would uh, affect permanent physical, uh, physiological changes to, to a child before that child um, is even allowed to, to vote. <laughs> that, 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 that terrifies me, and I see, uh, I see a viper's nest of, of litigation. I mean, lawyers who practice in these areas are, are licking their lips, I, and, and it won't take long. You imagine any child who is six, seven, eight years old at this point, or nine, who, who, is, who is being subjected to this type of treatment, um, you know, it takes 10 years to, to see what, what happens to them. Um, so I think it's in the near, the near horizon here in Canada, and it would appear to be in the near horizon in Portugal. I mean, this is the one, this is the part of your legislation that makes me shake my head, the, the treatment of children. Um, and now here's the other thing. So the, even though the legislation says, I, I believe the wording is acceptance situations of confirmed risk to health, treatment and surgical and pharmacological interventions uh, um, or of any other nature um, must not be performed until the moment in which the gender identity is manifested. Well, my understanding is that the the proponents of of this theory on gender believe that gender identity can be manifested before a child reaches the age of majority or the age of consent, Um, that this can happen at any point. And so when they say acceptance situations of confirmed risk to health, it makes it sound like, okay, we're not going to do this at all except in emergencies. But then it says until the moment in which the gender identity is manifested. Well, that... I mean, there. Uh, my understanding is that there are children uh, under the age of majority who who doctors believe have manifested their gender gender identity. So this really does nothing. This is no barrier to that type of treatment, and I find that 
as a parent I, and not just a lawyer. I find that just absolutely shocking. Yeah, and another point that now comes from Article 9, that now is Article 7, uh, uh, and that reinforces what you're saying about the possibility of them uh, to, uh, being talking about, uh, be talking about uh, people that are even under the age of 16, is that they added the third point to it, that, that, that reads, intersex people are allowed to request the procedure of alteration of sex in the civil registry and the following alteration of first name from the moment their gender identity manifests itself. And in one of the hearings that was with a person from the National Council for, uh, of Ethics for the Life Sciences, the, that person asked them, oh, but what do you mean with from the moment the gender identity manifests itself because according to what I know it happens when the child is three years old. Absolutely. So, uh, are you talking about this or what are you talking about? And they couldn't give a proper answer to that. So, uh, so, so that... They could, that no, but really they could give, they could give a proper answer that they have chosen not to. So, so there are activists and proponents that know exactly what they're doing. And then they have what I would call, and people have termed it this way, useful idiots that support the legislation because they haven't done the deep dive on the literature and the ideology to know what's at foot. But there, there are, there is a deliberate effort not to tell you what is really going to happen. And this is what happened with C-16. This is why I get animated when I talk about it. They were not being, I believe, they were not being honest with what the the, the bill uh, brought forward, the, the baggage and freight that is coming with it, the ideolo ideological basis, the, 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 what the intention of the law was, what they, what they were going to use this, this tool of the law for. And, and you know, so when, when you say that they couldn't answer the question, I venture they could answer the question unless they were one of these, as I call it, useful idiots who just sees a warm and fuzzy human rights bill. But they could answer it, but they don't want to. The less people know about what they're doing here, the better, because as you saw in Canada, the more people learned about what, what, what this legislation was, was meant to do and intended to do, the more of an uproar and the more resistance they, they received to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and now in Article 11, that now is Article 8, we go back to what I was saying previously. Uh, it makes clear the fact that these people that go to the civil registry to change their sex and name don't have to take any procedures to change their appearance and to be more in accordance with the, the opposite sex or gender. So again, the uh, a person can now go to the civil registry who is a 16 year old with authorization from their their legal representatives uh, and uh, and change to the opposite sex and also acquire a name from the opposite sex and then present themselves on the street as being of the opposite sex and then if someone deals or treats them as being of the sex they seem to be of then we can get again into the question of direct, direct or indirect discrimination, which they are not clear about, right? So aside from the issue of the chaos that I talked about earlier that this, this does, this, this, this is important because what people don't understand is um, when, when your, your identity documents, and I use the example of a passport, when it says gender in there, 
What this change says is that wherever it references gender on an identity document, it has nothing to do with your biological sex. Now, most people, well, let me, let me rephrase that. I have to be careful. Traditionally, when people saw the gender designation on an identity document, they thought they would accept that as, a, as meaning someone's sex. What this piece of legislation does is it suddenly says that an identity document that references gender does not mean sex. It means gender, which, which to the average human being um, uh, would imply uh, a biological basis to. But, the, but what this law says is there's, it, it eliminates the connection between biological sex and gender. And, and it does it by saying, oh, well, look, we shouldn't have to medically test somebody before they try to manifest their identity, their, their, their subjective identity in their identity documents, which, which as I said to you, I, 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 I find it hard to stand in the way of that. I mean, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't want somebody peering between people's legs before they, they give them a passport. But what this does, and people need to understand this, is it suddenly says that when gender is referenced on a government-issued document, it does not have anything to do with someone's biological sex. And my understanding, I'm not an expert, my understanding is that there is a, a that the, the scientific research in this area is that that gender ha has a biological influence to it, that there is a biological connection between between uh, gender and, and sex. Uh, and so to implement a piece of legislation that says no, that, that gender is completely a social construct, or as I saw in an earlier document you sent me, a psychological um, uh, uh, strictly a psychological phenomenon. Um, my understanding is that goes against uh, uh, scientific research in the area, and the, and and the preponderance thereof, and and at least since the 1970s. I'm not that expert. I'm a lawyer, um, but but people need to understand is that when we look at sections like this, it's implementing that idea into law in a very subtle way that the average person wouldn't pick up upon. The average person will do what I just said, which is, yeah, I don't think we should subject people to a medical test to get an identity document. But then when you think that out. What they're doing here is something very significant. So people need to be aware. Be aware. If, you, if, if everyone's fully informed about these pieces of legislation and our duly constituted legislative bodies have been forthcoming with all information intent and, and we decide as a society to pass these pieces of legislation, then, then that's great. That, that is the will of the people. Where, where I have some problems, and I, I see that you're obviously catching on to this as well, and, and this is what Dr. Peterson uh, um, spoke out about, is that I, I don't think they're being forthcoming. I don't think they're giving the information not only to the legislators, but also to society in general to say, here's what we're doing. I've, I've likened pieces of legislation to the like this to Trojan horses. In other words, on their face, innocuous and benign, and once, once the bill is passed, then the policy framework and ideology unfolds. And then you get to see what they really meant uh, um, by legislation like this. So when I look at that, that section um, that we're talking about, about identity documents, that's the part that people don't catch, is that, that you know once you say that gender is disconnected from biological sex, that means that legally you've now implemented a theory on gender as a social construct. Mm -hmm. Right. And now going to Article 13. And that now is Article 10. And I think this is a very, very important article because, uh, and I w I'm going to read the part that they changed because 
they changed one of the points, I think, to uh, the state must guarantee the existence and access for everyone who might request it to reference services and specialized units at the National Health Service, namely towards surgical, pharmacological treatments and intervention, and of any other nature destined to matching their body with their gender identity. And so here in Portugal, and I think in Canada, you have the same issue, is that we have a universal uh, health system. So, I mean, when they put things like, uh, uh, when they word things li like this, uh, and, and if they are so worried about discrimination, uh, from the point a person has gone to the, um, the civil registry without any kind of medical report, they change their sex, and now they go to the National Health Service and they seek to uh, adequate their body with what they have in mind, wouldn't you say that they could pick up on this to say, oh, now if I go to the National Health Service, and I, I am seen by a doctor, and the doctor tells me that I don't really have gender dysphoria or something like that, and that it would not be good for me to perform uh, sex reassignment surgery or something like that, uh, couldn't these uh, gi give grounds for people to say that if the doctor says this and, and doesn't allow the person to do what she wants, to, to that to be considered discrimination? Once again, uh, diff difficult question. Um, we do have a similar, we have a universal healthcare system. What's interesting in Canada is the debates in Canada right now about issues like this, about whether your doctor has to provide treatment that is requested uh, um, in accordance with the law. They're not centered around this issue. So, so gender dysphoria issues and gender identity. Right now we're having these public uh, discussions around the idea of we have a law that just passed that allows for physician or doctor assisted suicide and and there is a, a growing uh, number of doctors who are saying I just cannot assist somebody in ending their life that's that's something I you know on a, as a matter of conscience um, whether they think it's against their their Hippocratic oath or, what, or whatever you might call it they're they're beginning to push back and there is debate as to whether or not these physicians must fulfill the wishes of their patient. I have not seen this in the gender identity and dysphoria space, and it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, it just means I have I've not personally come across it, I don't I don't spend my days in that area. But absolutely, you, you've, you've hit a hot button issue, and that is uh, if um, somebody uh, wishes to have this treatment, the law guarantees them the access to, and I would, and I also, when I read that legislation that you that you just read out, it's the funding that they want. Clearly, um, they, they they want the public to fund these things. Um, um, you know, can a doctor uh, say no? And I am going to have to plead in ignorance on this issue and simply suggest to you that 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 is a, a, an absolutely live issue and a debate that has to be had because there will be any number of doctors who will be opposed to it. My understanding is that there is a split within the medical profession and within the psychological profession about the utility of, of gender reassignment surgery or, or, or about surgery to deal with secondary sex characteristics, um, that, that there is a, a body of medical uh, literature and doctors 
who have said that um, that it is a bad idea to to intervene uh, physically in patients who suffer from this stuff. That that that, that um, the majority of of patients who exhibit gender dysphoria issues, is particularly as a child, um, that eventually they grow to um, I guess what would the word be manifest an, uh, a gender identity that aligns with their biological sex. Um, I've read some stories about about patients who have had uh, reassignment surgery who are who regret having that done, um, and so uh, I don't know the answer. My sense is that doctors will be able to avoid having to to uh, fulfill treatment that that runs contrary to their conscience. However, based on the law as I'm reading it, the the patient would absolutely have legal recourse against that doctor, against the medical institution that they work for, saying, I'm entitled to this, you must do it. Um, so, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm giving you a fairly weak legal answer, but but um, this is a live issue and a live debate, and I don't know the answer, to, to be candid with you. Yeah, but I think that that's really the problem, the problem here. And then uh, they reinforce this point in the same article that originally was point four, now is point two, and and they say the general directorate of health must define within 270 days a model of intervention by means of orientations and technical norms to be implemented by the health professionals within the scope of the questions related to gender identity, gender expression, and the sexual characteristics of the people. So, uh, aren't they with this point trying to sneak in some sort of uh, training to be given to the health professionals to indoctrinate them to this sort of ideology surrounding gender identity, gender expression, and so on, and then uh, later to tell them, so now you have this training, so you have to evaluate patients according to these guidelines. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but within Canada, there was a, uh, a significant debate as to what is appropriate treatment for individuals who are manifesting gender identity that is different from uh, or deviates from their biological sex. Um, there was a doctor in Canada named uh, Dr. Ken Zucker, um, and, and Dr. Zucker uh, apparently was widely recognized for, for decades as an expert in this area, and he worked at, a, at a, an institute called the uh, CAMH, um, uh, the, there was a, a gender clinic um, at, at one of our, uh, I guess it would be a psychological hospital. Um, he was actually trotted out of, terminated from, um, from his employment because it was determined that his expertise and research um, which which said that you know someone who suffers from this on average the majority of them will eventually settle into a gender identity that aligns with their biological sex that that became fell out of fashion and he was actually terminated because that his uh, his advice was that save and except for exceptional circumstances um, you should not intervene in the uh, in the determination of gender identity um, until somebody um, you know reaches an age of majority um, that from from reading about that and I mean 
And as a lawyer, I was interested in this issue because he got terminated from his job. And I wanted to know, like, what, you know, could someone be terminated who was pursuing what I understood to be authoritative science in an area because all of a sudden, uh, you know, the administra administrators of, of that, that healthcare institution suddenly decided that his science was not the good science. So as a lawyer, I'm looking at that and saying, is that what we call just cause for termination? Can he be terminated for that? Or is he entitled to some, some manner of recourse? Um, and in reading that, what what became apparent to me was this split that I told you about that, uh, amongst the experts that apparently there is a um, there is a split in the medical community as to what constitutes appropriate treatment. Um, when I read the article that you just read, um, which used to be what was it, Article 13, uh, subsection four, where it talks about developing uh, orientations and technical norms. I, uh, I venture that those orientations and technical norms will be led by those who believe that early and often intervention in the gender identity of a patient, particularly a child, is the recommended course. Um, it, will, it will probably reject that scientific evidence that, that says that no, you know, if you do nothing, um, you support the person through through their um, gender identity issues that they'll eventually manifest an identity that aligns with their biological sex, that that, that body of research will not form <laughs> the orientations and technical norms. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, if you believe, if you, no, if you believe, if you, if you implement a law that says that gender is entirely a social construct disconnected from underlying biological sex, um, then that leads you down a path as to what then man what then constitutes appropriate healthcare treatment. So everything starts from the ideology, the point of ideology, and unfolds from there. And so, what is appropriate um, healthcare orientation, technical norms, um, and treatment? Um, uh, if you believe that people are a blank slate, that gender is is nothing more than a social construct, that there is no biological basis to gender, then how you treat that is going to be vastly different than 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 someone that that understands that there is a biological basis to gender. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and now Article 14, that now is Article 11, uh, they talk about protection for these people at the level of the educational system. So uh, they talk about prevention of discrimination and to provide training to all professionals in, at the level of the educational system. So uh, don't you think that what they want to do with this is as it happens in other countries like Canada, I think as well, that they want to provide teachers with uh, some kind of formal training that, that is devised by these ideologues, people who work with gender ideology, let's say, uh, and then for the professors and so on, the teachers, uh, to, to give, uh, to also provide this information to the students and for them then to, as they say, create a safe space uh, in the schools for, for these people. So uh, in, in Canada and in Ontario, we have, um, this is uh, absolutely part of the, the, uh, the changes that are happening on the legislative front that are implementing um, gender theory into law are also uh, um, part of the curriculum in most provinces. And so within Ontario, absolutely, the, uh, the curriculum and, and uh, has been changed, uh, they call it the sex ed curriculum, um, has been changed to reflect that, that gender is nothing more than a social construct. And so when I read this section, um, while it's positioned as an anti-discrimination measure and ensuring that, that, that um, students are, have access to safe spaces and a safe learning environment, um, when you actually see how, uh, what this, how this manifests on the ground within the education and teaching environment, it, it manifests in, in the uh, teaching 
um, of the ideology. So, and the ideology being gender is nothing more than a social construct, that there is no biological basis to gender. Um, interestingly, in Canada, and this may, this may be an international phenomenon, but they have a, a, um, a, a, the interna I guess it's the International Day of Pink. And this is something that the school system, particularly in Toronto, where I, uh, where I live, um, is a big deal. It just happened last week. And the International Day of Pink, um, there was a, apparently a, the, the backstory is there was a child in one of the, I think it was a Canadian province, who, who had a, I, I think it was non-traditional uh, gender identity. I don't know. Anyway, they were a victim of bullying. Um, this was a small child, and everyone in the school um, then supported that child. I guess they wore pink. I think it was. I think the the child had, was a, was a was a biological boy and had worn something pink and was bullied because of it because it wasn't uh, you know reflective of his of his biological sex. And so all the kids in the school apparently wore pink that day, one day to support uh, this individual, which is, I don't know, clearly it's a good story, um, something that, that we all encourage. Um, however, now that there's an internet, or at least a Canadian Day of Pink, where all the schools do the same thing. Now, originally, when the Day of Pink was brought forward into, um, into Toronto, the Board of Education said that it was a, you wore pink to show your, your support against bullying, full stop. Um, this is actually something I tweeted about this week. That 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 it was originally defined as as a stand against bullying, and of course, who wouldn't wear pink against bullying? I mean, that that's that's something everyone can support. However, it's now migrated, and this year it is it is uh, you you the, the the board of education sent out a a publication that said everyone should wear pink on the International Day of Pink to oppose gender-based bullying and so they've actually changed it there's been a there's been a migration as to to what the day of pink actually means and most parents would send their children off to school and think of course i'm putting my child in pink of course we're against bullying without realizing that, that there's actually something else going on here and and so i know there's actually a um, uh, journalists in, in Canada that have written, you know, what's going on with this day of pink? I think uh, there's a journalist named Christy Blatchford, and she writes in a paper called the National Post, and I and perhaps even Barbara Kay have written that there's actually a freighted ideology behind the day of pink that most people are completely oblivious to, and that ideology is exactly what we're seeing in this Portuguese piece of legislation, and it is it is part and parcel of this idea of we're going to teach children a theory on gender that their parents probably don't even understand, <laughs> uh, that may be contrary to, to the preponderance of scientific evidence in the area, uh, and we're going to do this under the guise of everyone wear pink and let's be warm and fuzzy. It's scary. It's scary. It, uh, the amount of this stuff that's going on, I say by stealth and by misdirection, is what causes me, and I said this at the Senate, it causes my hackles to go up. It, it, the hair on the back of my neck goes up and says, what are they hiding? Why are they hiding? Dr. Peterson has said, and I, I've heard him say this, that, that the battle between the social constructionists and those who believe that there is a biological basis to, to not only gender, but there are diff biological differences between the sexes, um, that that battle apparently was won, uh, uh, was lost by the social constructionists you know, in the 60s or 70s. I mean, I don't know this stuff, I'm not an expert, but if that's the case, the hell are we doing 50 years later teaching uh, flawed science to our children? Now, I get it. We need protected and safe spaces for everyone. Everyone should have the opportunity to learn, equal opportunity to learn in a, in a place that, you know, that is welcoming and, and safe. But 
take it that next level? Should we be teaching our children um, concepts about gender and sex that, from what I understand, are not are not the leading evidence? Yeah, that's what's worrying about this. Uh, and now Article 17, that now is Article 13, uh, they talk about, uh, and this I think is a very, very important article because it's where they say, uh, where they talk about the consequences for people who, who practice acts, acts of discrimination against these people. Uh, and they say that uh, they would have to give some sort of monetary compensation for any kind of discrimination by action or omission. What do they mean by omission here? Well, traditional discrimination is that you take an act against somebody, so you, you do not hire the person, you do not rent property to the person, you deny them goods and services. So there's an actual action going on there. But when they add the words omission, what they're saying is failing to do something, so you're omitting something. And what I read this section to mean is that if you, uh, if you do not understand, abide by, and follow the underlying theory on gender that's inherent in this, the ideology that's inherent in this legislation, that that is in fact an omission. Now, there was a huge uproar in Canada over the issue of pronouns and and the usage of gender neutral non-binary pronouns and and I'm not going to get into it uh, at this point but um, what what I imagine this eventually will be used for and I'm sorry I'm pointing at my own screen here because I got it in front of me omission will be things like failing to use the gender neutral or non-binary pronoun that has been selected by that individual um, when you when you engage in discourse with them. That that would be an omission, and it would expose you to liability. So I believe that that's the door through which you're going to have your own pronoun law. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now the last point I have about this bill is from Article 19, now now 15, uh, which talks about uh, conferring the legitimacy to associations and non-governmental organizations to start legal actions to protect these rights. So wouldn't you say that here they're, gi they're giving ground for these organizations constructed around gender ideology and so on uh, to be able to more easily reinforce their ideas in society through legal actions? Yeah, this, this this section, I I I don't know if we have something similar in Canada, but I read this and I read it again and I read it again, and I believe that um, there are organizations that are promoting the um, not only the the gen the theory on gender that's inherent in this legislation and C sixteen and similar pieces of legislation that exist in California, New York State, and I believe Washington State. There are there are non governmental advocacy or activist organizations that are that are that have pushed that 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 forward and they have a they have actually set out a game plan of, of how they're going to um, uh, not only uh, teach this stuff, but also implemented into legislation. You'll note all the bills are almost identical. So all the, all the legislation that deals with the subject matter are almost identical across all different jurisdictions. Um, my understanding is there are organizations that, that are behind that. They're the ones that propose the legislations to the legislative body and try and uh, bring forward the support, put them into law. Then there's the educational component that comes with it, which we've just we've just covered. Um, there there is a whole uh, um, group 
behind why why are all the, why is all this coming forward now? Why are why do we have all this legislation happening in the last you know in Canada the last five ten years um, and happening you know around the world in the last two or three? Um, there are these organizations, and so what this seems to be doing is allowing those organizations to come out from the shadows and actually be full business partners, if you will, in in uh, propagating this theory on gender. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, I, I, I don't know why they would be doing that in Portugal. That, that struck me as highly unusual. I mean, it's one thing to have these organizations operating and doing the things they do. I mean, that's how legal change happens is activism and, and things like that. So, uh, but, but for a piece of legislation to come out and say that we're going to I guess it's legitimize these or at least create uh, some government rec uh, recognition that they are authorities in this area. I mean, that that's how I read that. And I found that I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, I, I can't understand this part with this where they say that they would give. Uh, let me see it again, that they would give um, the right for these organizations to start legal actions to protect these rights, so, but what kind of legal action? So I don't know your system, uh, I don't know the system in the European Union well enough to be able to speak to it, but I can tell you that in Canada, we have, in Ontario, we have a, a Human Rights Commission. It falls under the Social Justice Tribunals of Ontario. Uh, I smile as I say that because I think it's a horrible name. Um, it's a very accurate name, but I think it's a horrible, a horrible thing that we have in Canada called the Social Justice Tribunal. We have we have human rights tribunals, and we have them federally and provincially. Um, and in our human rights tribunals, you can bring a uh, an individual can bring a complaint of discrimination, someone who suffered discrimination. But we also have a thing called the human rights commissions and the commissions are separate from the adjudicative body the tribunal and the commissions can actually initiate their own complaints they can investigate complaints they can conduct inquiries like a police force um, and then they can actually uh, bring their own complaint before the tribunal on behalf of someone or a group of people or they can uh, intervene in an existing complaint that's brought by an individual and they become essentially the prosecutor and so um, my sense is that this is trying to empower independent organizations to have that same authority. In other words, to say there is a group of people who are being systemically discriminated against based on gender identity and gender expression. We are the experts in this area. We are the advocacy body that represents these people. And therefore, they, it's, it's empowering them from how I read this to be able to bring complaints of discrimination to whatever the adjudicative body may be um, at the European Union. I believe, is there a court of human rights? In any event, something similar to that um, you're actually empowering these these bodies that are non-governmental organizations and associations to actually intervene legally um, and have standing. That's how I read that. Um, now, I don't know if there's precedent for that in, in Portugal or in the European Union. And if there is, I mean, all, all, all the more support for, for Brexit, I suppose, because that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. So, uh, and, and I mean, I already, I already went through the, the points I identified as problematic. Do you find any other thing here in this bill that could be considered problematic? Um, I did see some similarities with something we have in Ontario called Bill 89. And Bill 89 says that, in Ontario, says that if um, 
uh, it, I'm going to paraphrase it in the interest of time, but essentially what it says is that everyone should support the, uh, the gender, the selected or chosen gender identity of a child um, that to arrange uh, either psychological, uh, to arrange psychological uh, treatment for a child um, that does not uh, affirm the chosen gender identity of the child um, is actually grounds for the state, the government, to uh, to seek a protection order over the child to actually remove the child from um, the parent's care, um, and that it actually uh, prohibits any form of psychological intervention that might seek to address the gender dysphoria issues unless the treatment is simply to affirm the gender identity chosen by the child. And what this, this law was created um, ostensibly to prevent what's called conversion therapy, which I understand has a horrid history um, in Western medicine, um, the conversion of homosexual uh, um, people. Um, it was essentially to outlaw that, um, but it went further and said that it, it applied now to gender identity and says that if a child is manifesting a gender identity that is separate from their biological sex, if the parents were to arrange psychological assistance that does anything other than affirm and support that change, um, that, that the child, uh, first of all, that, that, that uh, it prevents the psychologist from doing so, but it also allows the government to remove the child from the parent's care. Um, it also, it allowed the, the child to be removed from the parent's care if the parents were doing anything other than supporting the new gender identity exhibited by the child. And I read uh, in this legislation similar, um, uh, similar um, language, and I could be wrong, but what I saw was that the... Um, that the child could get access to the health care uh, to 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 manifest or to to um, deal with their their gender identity issue, and if the parents did not support it, um, an application could be made to an adjudicative body or tribunal. Well, what I read that as is now the state or the government is overriding the rights of the parent or at least the interests of the parent in the raising of their own child. So um, I could be wrong, but I, I did recall seeing that, and it, it it gave me echoes of Bill eighty nine, which on its face I think sound completely totalitarian and authoritarian and replaces now the the family unit and the parental unit with the state in in important uh, issues involving their own children mm -hmm. right and you already somewhat talked about it but could you please give us a brief summary of uh, what are the similarities between uh, this bill and C16 and what are the main differences and uh, about the differences in what ways is this bill worse than C16? Hmm, tough question. The similarities we've gone over obviously to, to a great extent already but um, essentially the, the, sim the basic similarity is uh, the new law of Portugal when this piece of legis legislation passes will be that uh, gender is a social construct, that the, it is implementing a theory on gender that says that there's no biological basis to it whatsoever. That is identical to C16. The other aspect that's identical to C16 is that the, the terms gender identity and gender expression are not, from what I understand, being defined in the bill, um, and nor is what would constitute discrimination or discriminatory act that is identical to C16. Um, and, and so these there are large question marks around this piece of legislation, and I would venture as drafted, without any connection to, to what those concepts mean, it is, it is vague and could be struck down by a court. However, 
it, those concepts will be defined. Eventually, there will either be a piece of legislation or a policy development organization that will that that has quasi legislative authority will say what these things mean. And when that that happens or occurs, when that connection is made, you will find it will be identical to what our provincial and our Ontario provincial piece of legislation says. And it will it will it will include references to things like uh, mandatory use of gender neutral non-binary pronouns. Um, it will uh, it will uh, essentially say that if you um, um, it, any sort of uh, opinion or treatment that suggests that that gender has a biological basis will actually uh, open you and expose you to claims of discrimination and harassment, um, and that's that that's the compelled speech component. It's coming with your legislation. It's but yours is identical to C sixteen right now in that those things are all missing or not defined, left up in the air. Um, one thing that is scarier in your legislation is the, is the thing we just covered. Is it's it's this idea of of empowering um, non-governmental uh, organizations and associations to bring complaints. Um, I think that yours goes further. I mean, I, it's a much longer bill. The Canadian bill was very small. This one goes further and talks about identity documents and how those things get changed. That was in a separate piece of legislation in Canada. Um, it it, it taught your, your piece of legislation talks about medical intervention and those things. None of that was in C16. None of that was in, but that is also, that, that then is in separate pieces of legislation um, that will be passed or have been actually the reason C16 didn't have them is because healthcare is a I believe a provincial mandate in 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 a jurisdiction in Canada and so all that legislation can be found provincially what you will find I'm sure is that the Ontario legislation is the, the pieces of legislation we have um, are identical to what you're seeing in this in this one uh, piece of, of, of Portuguese legislation. Um, Ontario is very progressive and we uh, our laws are at the forefront of implementing gender theory into the various areas of the law, the education system, the healthcare system, as well as the anti-discrimination system. And so if you look at our Ontario laws, you will find everything that's in this Portuguese law and then some. So, um, yeah, does that, does that help you out? <laughs> yeah, yes, I think it helps a lot. So, uh, and so, uh, just before we finish, uh, and now that I'm talking with you here, uh, another thing that I would like to talk about that, and that is going on now in Canada, and particularly in, the, uh, in your province, uh, Ontario, is the fact that uh, at the Law Society of Ontario, you've been having some issues about uh, compelled speech. Could, could you please talk a little bit about that? and? Right. And, and does it have something to do with these kinds of bills when, when they refer to protecting human rights in this way? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask about that. The Law Society of Ontario is our is our legal regulator. So in Ontario, lawyers are a self-regulating industry. Um, we we regulate ourselves, and so our regulatory body um, has recently come forward and uh, required that all um, lawyers practicing in the province of Ontario uh, must uh, prepare a statement of principles, whereby we affirm our duty to promote the concepts of diversity, equality, and inclusivity in everything we do and with our clients and in the public. 
and and we've never had that requirement before. We have an existing requirement that we abide by human rights legislation, that we not discriminate, that we uphold the charter rights and freedoms of all uh, all in society. But this this statement of principles goes further, and it, it requires us to actually prepare this this statement of of values that we will now uh, put and elevate to uh, the highest values in everything we do. Um, diversity, in, uh, equality, inclusivity clearly are not offensive concepts. They are uh, when you first read them. Um, uh, who who wouldn't be in support of those things? However, they have varied definitions. In other words, not everybody agrees on what those terms mean or ought to mean, and and uh, they are, have already been ruled by uh, courts in Ontario to uh, to be values. Um, they are not legal concepts uh, uh, or, or concepts that have a single legal definition. In any event, uh, myself and, and other lawyers in Ontario have uh, uh, recognized immediately that our regulator should not be uh, requiring ideological purity tests to practice law, meaning they should not be asking us to elevate certain values I would say political values uh, above others, and that when the the uh, legal regulator does act in that way and require ideological purity, um, it is essentially compelling the speech and expression of its membership. In other words, it is legally requiring us to mouth certain words and opinions that the regulator has decided are important to the regulator, and that in Canada has been ruled unconstitutional. The reason uh, I've, I've spoken out uh, vociferously against what's happening at the Law Society is because I see it as a manifestation of, of a theme that is happening um, in, in society, but in, particularly in Canadian society, whereby we have moves, and I think I, I believe that they're emanating from the left of the political spectrum, to enforce ideological conformity. Uh, the uh, compelled speech is a is is uh, a concept that has been defined legally in the U.S. and also um, in Canada, the Supreme Court of Canada, as any piece of legislation, rule, or policy that requires uh, persons to mouth uh, words or opinions that are not their own. And what the courts in the U.S. as well as in Canada have said is that that is, and in Canada they said it is totalitarian. It is foreign to, uh, to uh, the, the traditions of, of democracies like Canada. So the Supreme Court of Canada has been very clear that when, when the government gets in the, in the business of forcing you to mouth certain words, you know, and I've used the example of it's, it's like in Korea, you must call uh, the leader, dear leader. I mean, that's forced speech. And right away, when you hear it in that way, you have a knee-jerk reaction to think, well, that's totalitarian. It's exactly what our Supreme Court of Canada has said. Now, the reason I started speaking out against it is you know, why I understood that to be the case, aside from my gut reaction that compelled speech um, is wrong, is that that's how I, that was my entree into, into speaking on Bill C-16. Um, I'm not a, a gender theorist. I'm not a, a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. I don't, you know, what I know of, of, of theory on gender and, and, and the science behind it has come uh, after my involvement on C-16. What immediately brought me into the C-16 um, idea was, was that with Bill C-16, what we saw was a manifestation of compelled speech. Um, what C-16 was suddenly saying is that there is only one government-approved theory on gender, that it is a social construct disconnected from biological sex, and that if you are to express the uh, any other theory, you are running afoul of the government-approved version of the of gender, and also 
there was this additional connection to to these policies that had been developed by the Ontario Human Rights Commission that required uh, persons to use certain words and phrases when interacting with um, gender non-conforming or non-binary individuals. And those were these gender neutral pronouns, zeer, they, um, those, those types of things. The, the C-16 uh, referred to and said you must look to these policies um, to decide to, to determine when you are being discriminatory or harassment, uh, harassing somebody. Um, and it was it, it, never before had we had a law requiring you to address people by, by certain pronouns. And, and this was the first law. And so um, I saw a problem. I, I thought, geez, what's the government doing um, mandating uh, or compelling um, uh, people to abide by a certain theory on gender and the words and expressions that go along with it? I thought that sounds oddly totalitarian and particularly within an area uh, that touches everybody's lives. In other words, when you start uh, legislating compelled speech in the, in the area of gender, it's something that everybody uh, deals with you know on a daily basis how you interact with your fellow human beings and now the government is saying you know rather than saying you can't use these words you know the traditional restriction on expression is you know you, you shouldn't defame somebody you shouldn't libel somebody somebody's used the example of uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes that you know thou shalt not yell uh, fire in a crowded theater those are traditional restrictions on speech the government says what you shouldn't say well this was something new this is something where the government is saying when you interact in this space on gender um, you must use these these approved words phrases and theories and that's compelled speech. And I knew that the Supreme Court of Canada had said that that's totalitarian. And so my approach as a lawyer on this piece of legislation was I, I watched the legal discourse around it. And I, I saw that almost universally it was all proponents of the legislation. So lawyers and legal academics are saying, this is great. This is this is about extending you know human rights protection to a marginalized group. But nobody was saying... Um, but this is crossing a new threshold in speech law and speech regulation. Dr. Peterson did. And, uh, and so Dr. Peterson spoke out because he had that same knee-jerk reaction that I did. Um, I, you know, I, I ended up uh, writing a legal opinion on C-16 that talked about what the compelled speech elements of the legislation were, what the Supreme Court of Canada has said. And uh, and through that, ended up testifying at the Senate to that that legal opinion. I, I like I said, I'm not an expert on on gender or biological sex, uh, nor the community that this legislation sought to protect. But I am a lawyer, and lawyers are supposed to think critically, and they're supposed to look at things and analyze legislation. And and I analyzed it, saw that absolutely this is something unique. It is something uh, that all people in Canada should know about before it gets passed, and it's a problem. Fast forward. Um, the Law Society then brings forward its what I call compelled speech component. It is now requiring all of us to mouth, well, actually to promote diversity, inclusivity, and quality in everything we do. And, uh, and that is compelled speech. It is suddenly requiring us to mouth words and opinions that may not be our own. And it's requiring us to abide by their definitions of what diversity, inclusivity, and equality mean. I think everybody in Canada and most Western countries would believe that everyone is entitled to equality under before the law. 
Um, however, um, there is some information that, that, that the Law Society is pursuing a different definition of equality, that they believe in, in equality of outcome, and that, that at the end of the day, we all ought to end up at the same place. And uh, there, there are people, in addition to me, who find that reprehensible, who have seen societies organized on those lines that have collapsed into tyranny and totalitarianism. And so I'm, I'm vehemently opposed um, to that type of concept of equality. And so, um, but regardless, regardless, the regulator, the government should never be compelling you to speak. You see, understand, we all have the right to silence, but when the government compels speech, we no longer have the right to keep our opinions to ourselves. We must toe the line and speak the words that the government is, is asking us to do. This is actually, and I, I know I'm taking a long time here, but it's actually manifesting itself in other uh, venues. In Canada, um, there there was a uh, we have a, a federal government program that where the federal government gives money to groups and organizations, non-governmental groups and organizations, to allow them to hire summer students, um, students over the course of the summer who are who are not in school, and they give them this money. Well, this year the the quote unquote liberal government, and as I've said to you, I think that they're anything but a liberal. Uh, by disposition, they've actually said that that money is now conditional upon those groups and organizations affirming that their core, that their mandate does not involve opposing abortion. And so they've said that if you are, for instance, a Catholic church organization that, that opposes abortion, you will not get this money. However, if you just check the box that says that you will not oppose abortion, um, we'll give you the money. What they're doing there is they're trying to compel the opinions and expression of those that receive the funds. They're tying the funds, this government grant, to you towing the line and abiding by what the government is now considering, considers its orthodoxy on the concept of abortion. Um, there's other examples. We, we In Canada, our government is pursuing free trade pacts with, with many different countries. And uh, the quote-unquote liberal government is requiring that those trade deals um, include sections on gender and the, and the climate and the environment. Uh, that the, that the, the signatory, the other country, agree to what are the Canadian federal government's opinions on things like the environment and gender rights and, and subject matter like that. That is their effort to get others to abide by and, and mouth their opinions and expressions. It's the most illiberal concept one can imagine. If you are a classical liberal and you are seeing someone forcing their ideology and their thinking on you, it should immediately cause you to recoil in horror. And that's exactly what's happening. And so the law society is 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 its own little fight, but it nests within a greater framework of what I believe to be an illiberal left, political left, which is, is no longer satisfied with it being able to have its own concepts on, on, on different political ideas. They want, and it's not enough that we don't breach the law or don't, you know, you know, thou shalt not discriminate. That's no longer enough. Now you've got to think like them and use their words. It's actually, I believe, a quest for control. And I believe that they're trying to not only control the legal domain, but now they're trying to control the thoughts and words that, uh, and the discourse that we all use. And I, I find it shocking. I, I'm, uh, there is some pushback that's beginning to happen in Canada, but the Law Society was a perfect example of, of that being manifested. The Law Society is beginning to pursue illiberal methods 
uh, in its in its in its regulation of its membership. So we're uh, it, right now. It, it the regulator requires it. There is a group that's pushing back against it. They're called Stop Sop S T O P S O P dot C A, um, and they're trying to educate the membership and say why this is a problem. Once again, you may not be opposed to the concepts of diversity, equality, inclusivity, but you should be opposed to your regulator compelling your values, opinions, and political thought and belief. Sorry, that was a that was a bit of a diatribe. No, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, and it was important for people here to know in Portugal as well what we might expect in the near future or something like that. So, Jared, I think it was a great conversation we had here. W would you like just to finish with perhaps some final remarks and to uh, for the Portuguese people to know perhaps people who are opposed to these things coming from gender ideology and so-called human rights and so on, what they perhaps can do to try to fight these uh, politically or legally? Uh, just, just quickly, I mean, what you're seeing in the proposed Portuguese legislation, what we saw in C-16 is a push from the left to, to implement changes to the fundamental aspects of our society that, that um, while on their face look innocuous and benign, actually will have tremendous impact on the daily lives of the people. And, and, and like I said, um, it's one thing not to run afoul of these laws, but when they bring with them an element that compels you to do certain things, some, some behavior, whether it be using pronouns or using words or abiding by theories that you may not agree with, that's where everybody in society should wake up and say, hey, this is illiberal. This is not the traditions of free and democratic societies. Yes, we shall protect people against discrimination and and we shall never just you know engage in pernicious or um, uh, discrimination however um, you know there's a difference between protecting people's rights and, and extending equality rights to people and then all of a sudden requiring others to do certain things there is I believe a totalitarian illiberal streak that is running through uh, um, through the current political left that uh, that m must be balanced it must be balanced with with discourse coming from the center and from and from right of center voices saying you know yes let's 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 look after those things those equality concepts that 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 the left um, uh, is is tends to be preoccupied with but it has to be balanced with this idea of the manner in which we do this should should be authoritarian. So um, I, I encourage all all people to get engaged, see what's going on, and and engage in the discourse so that we can have that balance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Jared, thank you a lot for being here with us today. Uh, we'll let you know when the interview is on YouTube. And so I guess have a nice Sunday. Yeah. You too. Thanks. It was good chatting with you, Ricardo. Okay. Thank you. Bye. 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 -bye. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.